Morning, everyone. Great to see you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about uh, the gospel of falling down. The gospel of falling down. And you know, a number of Jesus' parables uh, could well be called the gospel of falling down. And the one that I want to refer to particularly this morning is that famous parable uh, which is known as the parable of the prodigal son. And that is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And you probably know the story. The story tells uh, how a father, there was a father, and he had uh, two sons. And the younger son decided one day that he wanted his share of the father's inheritance. He couldn't wait uh, for the father to die. He wanted his share now uh, so that he could leave home and enjoy life. And this is what happened. Uh, the father gave him his half of the inheritance. And uh, we read uh, in this passage how this young son totally squandered his money, totally squandered the wealth that the father had bestowed upon him. And he got into such a state that he actually ended up feeding pigs for a living, uh, even wishing at one point that he could eat the pig's food. That's the state to which he uh, degenerated. And the scripture tells us how it dawned upon him that even his father's servants uh, had more food to eat than he did. And yet here, here he was, sunk so low, fallen so heavily, that he was eating with the pigs. So in desperation, sheer desperation, the younger son decided, uh, reluctantly, I think, to go back to his father and grovel to his father, hoping that his father might hire him as a servant so he could work on the estate. So let's pick up the narrative from verse 20 of Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants to him and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the, the uh, fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He wasn't happy. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this story, this parable, speaks about the nature of God, how he is always first to pick us up when we have fallen and messed up, as all of us do constantly, I'm sure. And it speaks of the transforming power of his grace as the son just like melts into the father's arms. And the story also gives us an interesting little insight into the subject of judgment. And we'll look at that a little bit later. Now, the young son leaves home because he wants to experience life. Life's not good enough at home. Certainly has all the security that he needs. And he's bored, basically. The son is bored and he wants to experience real life. He wants some stimulation in his life. Now, notice in this story that the father is not possessive at all. He doesn't cling to the boy, pleading with him to stay, nor does he allow himself to be offended and angrily send him off, as some fathers would do, you know, without his blessing. He simply allows him to leave. So the first insight into God's nature comes here, I think, right at the beginning of the story. God is not an overprotective parent. He knows that for some of his children, leaving home for a while is a necessary experience, even if it ends in falling down. See, leaving home, that phrase leaving home, may well take the form of leaving the religion that a young person's parents have struggled so hard to bring him up with. It can be any experience that in the end teaches us that what we're looking for cannot usually be found out there but is often waiting back home. And the irony is that we would never learn that lesson without first going through the painful period of leaving home. So the journey made by the prodigal son is a search for a particular kind of life satisfaction, which invariably ends in disappointment. So he was looking for adventure and stimulation, and for a while it was fun and gave a certain amount of pleasure. But like any uh, compulsive behaviour, it usually cannot last and will turn sour. And when his money ran out, so his luck ran out as well. 
and so did his enjoyment of life, as we've read. He soon discovered the consequences of looking for happiness in the wrong places. He began to suffer, really suffer, but not because of any external judgment. He wasn't suffering because God was judging him, making him suffer. His father was apparently still looking out for him, the scripture says, longingly searching the horizon with wide open arms and grace-filled eyes. No, the boy's suffering was a direct consequence of his quest to find meaning and fulfilment in the wrong places. Now, many Christians would assume that a person as selfish and as badly behaved as this son, whom the story tells us squandered most of his money on prostitutes, would rightly find himself under the judgment and wrath of God. It's what a lot of people would think, especially considering that he had not yet repented. But when we study this story with care, can we see any element of judgment in the father figure? All we see is a loving dad waiting for his son to fall back into his open arms. And the story tells us in verse 17 that the son came to his senses, it says, And it also tells us that he had given up any hope of the father receiving him back as a son. That was just not on the agenda. A son demanding his inheritance and walking out on his family was the ultimate and almost unforgivable humiliation that a father could ever experience. It just wasn't done in those times. So as the reality of his predicament struck him, With full force, he suddenly remembered his home that even life as a servant, hired servant, will be better than what he had now. And he knew what he would have to do, but expected no more than that, just being one of the hired hands. And probably, he thought, he wouldn't even be given that privilege. He was ready to say to his father, I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So clearly this boy, this young man, did not expect to receive forgiveness and a second chance. And you wonder whether he really knew his father, his father's heart. Because he was imagining that his father was harbouring judgment, even resentment against him. He was projecting his own self-judgment onto his father. Interesting. Can any of us uh, relate to that? A lot of us Christians think that we're under God's judgment for messing up in one way or another. But according to this story, God is not like that. Maybe that is what judgment is our own mistaken belief that God is sitting in judgment against us. Perhaps that's what judgment is. 
Certainly wasn't seen in the father. You see, in this story, the father, God, holds no anger and no judgment towards the boy. Even before, by the way, he shows any sign of repentance. And in fact, let's take this one step further. Did the son repent at all? The fact is that we don't really know what his heart was doing as he came to his senses. He certainly knew what the words he had to speak. He had to say, I have sinned, it says, against heaven and against you. He'd rehearsed that line. But was this because he had really repented? The one thing we can say is that the forgiveness was already flowing from the Father. Before he'd done anything, before he'd repented, the forgiveness was flowing from the Father. Even before he had a chance to say anything. It seems sometimes that, it, you know, that God does things the wrong way round, doesn't it? Because in this particular case, God had forgiven him, the Father had forgiven him before he'd said anything, before he'd even repented. And that's, well, that's against our theology, isn't it? I mean, surely you've got to repent first and then God forgives us, isn't that the way, isn't it? Well, it didn't work in this particular case. See, for me, the story demonstrates that God's totally unconditional love and forgiveness that flows ceaselessly in our direction That's what this is about. The son running into the father's arms was met by such mind-blowing grace and love that he melted. His repentance was in response to the redemption that he was being offered. He had found what he didn't even know he was looking for and certainly didn't expect to receive. If only we could truly hold on to that awesome picture of God as the father of the lost son, how our lives will be transformed. And when we have a judgmental view of God, we spend our lives trying to change and be accepted. However, when we meet the God of unconditional love, we don't have to try anymore, and yet and yet, we find transformation happening naturally within us. Now, there are two sons in this story, aren't there? Let's look at the older brother. He was angry, the scripture says, and his his situation is similar to that of the workers in the vineyard from another of Jesus' parables. Remember that one. And his anger was not due to the father being unjust and ungenerous, but to the fact that he didn't differentiate between those who worked harder and for longer and those who didn't. And again, this points to the father's heart, to the father heart of God that does not reward according to what a person has achieved, but according to who they are. A human being made in the image of God. See, meritocracy is the way of the world, isn't it? But it's not the way of God. And these parables are uncomfortable precisely because they do not fit with our expectation of wanting it all to be fair, wanting tit for tat. We want God to be like us, rewarding those who work the hardest, But God offers the same gift 
to everyone, whether they deserve it or not. Now, the sad irony comes when it comes to the older son is that though he is still offered the same gift, he refuses to receive it and symbolically places himself in exactly the same position as his brother had been out there with the pigs, metaphorically. So this is quite an amazing picture. The one who is morally in the right and has been a good boy and stayed in his father's house without straying to the left or to the right has ended up denying himself what he is being freely offered. Look at it this way. His perfectionism has become a barrier to grace. Whereas the younger son's imperfection has become a channel into the experience of grace. And the older son reminds me of the people that every church has, has its share of. Those who are so perfect and holy and law-abiding that they ooze not grace but a very unattractive self-righteousness. And we all have the capacity to be like that. The poor older son is an image of that part of each one of us that wants to earn God's love and approval. The part of us that is perfectionist, moralistic and self-righteous. And the amazing thing about this story is that the righteous one ended up being further away from God than the one who committed <clears throat> excuse me, almost every sin in the book. And that is very often the way that it is in the Bible, strangely. It's one of these paradoxes. There is a clear theme in Scripture that stresses the strange notion that the ones who make mistakes, who are failures, even sinners, are closer to the kingdom of God than the righteous. The fallen ones in Scripture seem to have a spiritual advantage over those who are religiously perfect. Jesus once declared to the chief priests and the elders of the temple, and he said, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, Matthew 21. So in some strange way, the sinner seems to be in a better position to hear about the transforming gift of grace than the righteous. It's as if the very fact of recognising one's sins, one's flaws and imperfections and cracks opens us up to what a perfect vessel can never experience because there is no wound, there's no flaw through which grace can flow. Now, I want to try and illustrate this truth with a prop. And you will be amazed, I know, because I never use overheads. I never use props in the church, but now I'm going to use a prop. And my prop is no expense spared, 
My prop is <clears throat> a piece of best uh, home base garden string. And this piece of string represents your relationship, my relationship with God. It's not a great example because we're down there and God is up here. But that's our relationship. And then, of course, what happens is we mess up. We sin. And we fall to the ground. There's a gap appears between us and God. But what this story is telling us is that what happens is God picks this up and he restores the relationship. Oh, that's good. I've been restored. But then I mess up or you mess up again. Oh, no. What happens? God is faithful. God is just. And he takes the initiative to restore our relationship. Is it going quite well, this prop? <laughs> good, good. But, you know, life is what it is. We are what we are. And what happens is we sin again. And this pattern repeats itself time after time after time. And the thing about God is that he is always faithful. And, you know, what this, what this story is telling us is that when we keep failing, somehow the strange irony of Scripture is that we become closer to God. So you see what's happened to our relationship with God. This piece of string has shortened because of all the knots in it. And we've actually drawn closer to God. And that's how it works. And it's like, it's not logic, is it? It's not logic, but it's what the scriptures tell us. Let me close with referring to just one other parable, story. And it's the story of the rich young man from Mark chapter 10. And you, again, you'll probably recognise this story. This young man had done his best since he was a young boy, the scripture tells us, to faithfully keep the commandments. He'd done his best. And in verse 21, we read, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus said to him, one thing you lack is go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And at this, the young man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, notice one thing about this young man. He really wanted to know what to do to please God. And the scripture says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. It doesn't say that very often in the New Testament. I think the only example I can think of when it says that Jesus loved someone was Martha and Mary, I think, but very few times. He loves the person who can't do it. Destroy your life. That's the only way to preserve it, the gospel. 
And we know that we can't do it. But the man who couldn't do it was the one that Jesus loved. Away success then. Welcome failure. That's the good news. And when you really take time to think about it, Jesus' ministry, his ministry, was not successful if, if viewed in terms of our current culture and definition of success. He didn't end up with a super church, did he? His tiny band of followers all betrayed him. His messianic campaign ended up with him not being recognised as the answer to the problems of the people, but um, the problem itself. He was not respected as a bringer of God's liberation, but was executed as a dangerous subversive and blasphemer. Success? Jesus faced the ultimate failure of losing his life in a most horrific way. He was not, in those terms, a success. And yet, this is precisely the point. Jesus turned everything on its head by allowing himself to lose everything, even his own life. He is the Messiah of the underdog, the rejected, the failure, the sinner, the unworthy and those who have fallen down. Away success, welcome failure. That is the gospel, the good news, the gospel of falling down. Amen.